If, if the pulpits in America, or as the pulpits get stronger, the devil will have to be driven back. Have you ever noticed that one little match in a completely dark room chases the darkness away, but you never see the darkness chasing the match away? Because light always prevails over the dark. So we just need more light. And the Bible says, the entrance of thy word gives light. And it gives understanding to the simple. So let's pray together, and then we're going to connect the dots and move on in this journey through the Old Testament. Father, thank you that your word is good, your word is truth, and it's totally dependable, totally trustworthy. And we come right now into your presence and ask you to teach us tonight that the great teacher of the church, the Holy Spirit of the living God, would just dwell amongst us right now. Open our understanding. Open our eyes. And will you breathe the prayer, church, and say, Lord, tonight, speak to me. I receive your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I think we need these up here, guys, if y'all could. And maybe, yeah, and the ones in the back off are okay. But if I could have these. There we go. All right, turn to your neighbor and tell them the word is good. Of course, Tyler, you're ready in case the clicker dies. I tell you what, we got one up on the clicker now. We're ready if it goes. All right, we're going to talk about the dynamic dozen. We've been going through the Pentateuch. Pentateuch is the first five books of the Old Testament. And you know that, right? Let's quote them together, can we? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. All right. Now we're going to look at the dynamic dozen. The next 12 books after the Pentateuch, and uh, it's good, good stuff. Last time we finished the Pentateuch, and we just quoted that, but which gives, the Pentateuch essentially gives the history of God's people from creation all the way to the edge of the promised land. Now, you do remember, church, and I, I repeat this a lot, the Old Testament is a type and shadow and picture of life in the New Testament. It, it's often physical, a physical picture of spiritual truth. When you and I got saved, we essentially got delivered from Egypt. We crossed the Red Sea. The Bible talks about our water baptism being a picture of the Red Sea, crossing the Red Sea, and headed for the promised land. And so we're really seeing a picture of our life. And tonight, we're really going to see some things that apply to New Testament living. And uh, so none of this that's written in the Old Testament is a mistake. Remember, Paul tells us twice that what is written in the Old Testament is so that we can learn from it, not commit the same mistakes, learn from it, and grow from it, avoid the traps they, they fell into. And so all of it that's written is written for our benefit. Doesn't that make you feel blessed? The whole Old Testament was given for our benefit. Now, this time we come to the historical books which chronicles their journey, Israel's journey, into the promised land. It's going to span the time from Joshua to Esther, okay? The dynamic dozen can be divided into three sections. The first section is the pre-monarchy. That's easy, meaning before the kings. It's when they had a theocracy. A theocracy is the rule of God. Monarchy is the rule of a man. 
And it was never God's will they'd be under a monarchy. It grieved God when they wanted a king because he wanted to be their leader. All right? So that's the first section. This section covers from Joshua up to 1 Samuel 10. And in 1 Samuel 10, we see Saul anointed as the first king. So from Joshua to 1 Samuel 10, they're under a theocracy, not a monarchy. Now, the second section is the monarchy. And that begins at 1 Samuel 10, continues all the way through 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings, which is the history of the monarchies of Judah and Israel. And, uh, you know, there you're dealing with Saul, David, and then the divided kingdom. And I think I shared with you before that the kingdom went into two places. The ten tribes comprised Israel, and they were the northern kingdoms. You don't see any good king in the northern kingdoms. Israel never had a, a righteous king. Judah, the southern kingdom, had two tribes, and they had several righteous kings, Jehoshaphat uh, and a few others. Uh, so it's covering 2 Samuel all the way through First and Second Kings, covers all the monarchies of Judah and Israel, Judah southern, Israel northern. Now, Samuel and Kings provide Israel's story in mostly chronological order. When we come to Chronicles, you don't have much new historical chronolo uh, chronological information provided for us, but there is a difference between Samuel and Kings and the Chronicles. And here's the difference. Samuel and the Kings were written before Israel's captivity and exile. Chronicles is written after the exile. So we would call it pre-exilic, post-exilic. Samuel and Kings is looking towards the exile, towards the captivity. Chronicles looks back on the captivity. Captivity was a big deal. They were taken into captivity because they could not, or well, I should say they couldn't, wouldn't obey God. Okay? So finally, we come to the third category, which is post-monarchy. And these are the last three books, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And they cover the time period after the kings and after the nation of Israel and Judea have been destroyed. Isn't that sad? I mean, you look at the kingdom under David, reached its zenith. Well, David and Solomon both reached its zenith. This incredible, Israel ruled the world. But because of sin and really Solomon's departure, in his old age, he departed from God seduced into the worst kind of idolatry, and a divided king left a divided kingdom. So you've got Israel now and Judah fighting each other, divided, killing each other, at war with one another. It's a sad picture. And finally, they're both carried off into captivity, Israel by the Assyrians and Judah by the Babylonians. It's sad. Such great promise nipped in the bud by sin. There's always a price for sin, everybody. Now, Ezra and Nehemiah continue Israel's history, while Esther spotlights something that happened during the time of Ezra. Esther probably happened somewhere between Ezra 6 and 7. We really don't know for sure. Uh, but don't expect new chronological information when you get to the Chronicles, just a different viewpoint after the exile. And so when you come to Esther, don't try to tie this into what happened after Nehemiah. You have Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. 
Esther is not a chronological continuation of Ezra and Nehemiah. Esther is giving us an up-close, kind of a microscopic, biographical look into what it was like during the time of Ezra. Okay? While the dynamic dozen are mostly chronological, each of the three sections contains one, what we'll call, spotlight book at the end that focuses on what those times were like by using biographies like that of Ruth, Naomi, Esther, and so forth. God uses those books to pull us up close so that we can see what it was like during the times of the kings and Samuel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, and so on and so forth. And we'll talk about that more as time goes on. This will help us in understanding how it all fits together. So the dynamic dozen can be broken down into three sections. Let's say them together. Pre-monarchy, before the kings. Monarchy, during the kings. And post-monarchy, after the kings. Easy, right? Kathy, please text them and tell them I'm roasting. Are y'all roasting? (laughs) I'm not alone. Thank you. Jeff, edit that off the tape. (laughs) All right. So let's start with Joshua, all right? Joshua records Moses' successor, Joshua, leading the people across the Jordan and into the Promised Land. Joshua's name literally means, what does it say? The Lord will save. And in Greek, the name is equivalent to Jesus. In Joshua, the people of God claim the inheritance God had promised them. So Joshua 21, verses 43 to 45, summarizes the book. This is really, really powerful. How many of you know that God's a covenant-keeping God? Let me ask that again. How many of you know God's a covenant-keeping God? How many of you totally trust that when Jesus comes, you're going up? How many know that if you die before he comes, you're still going to heaven? How many of you believe absent from the body, present with the Lord? And how many of you know he cannot break his word? All right, then let's look at how God performed his word for his people in these verses. This is Joshua 21, 43 to 45. It says, quote, So the Lord gave to Israel how much of the land? All All the land of which he had sworn to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it and dwelt in it. Verse 44, The Lord gave them rest all around, according to all that he had sworn to their fathers. And not a man of all their enemies stood against them. The Lord delivered all their enemies into their hand. Isn't that beautiful? Listen to all the alls. All the land, deliverance from all the enemies, all the promises were fulfilled. Our God is dependable. Verse 45, not a word. I think all of us ought to read this together because it's so good because some of you are believing God for something right now. And you're hanging it on a promise. So let's read it. Not a word failed of any good thing which the Lord had spoken to the house of Israel. Now I want to do something with that. Instead of saying to the house of Israel, I want you to put your name in there. Try it. Not a word failed of any good thing which the Lord had spoken to Jeff. She said Jeff. If it was true for them under the old covenant, do you think it's true for you under the new covenant? That not a word he's promised you is going to fail? Now read the next part with me. All came to pass. 
God was faithful to his word. Give the Lord a hand of praise. Isn't that good? Now, if you look at their journey across the Jordan, into the promised land, taking the land, it's, it can be divided into four sections, and it's really good stuff. Watch this. First, they cross. They cross the river into the promised land. For us, we would say we cross from death to life, from lost to found, from blind to sight. They cross the river. We crossed over from death to life. So say with me, they crossed. Now can you say, I crossed? Yep, you're alive, saint of God. Now, second, they take. Once they get there, they take the land. Joshua 5.13 begins with Joshua and the battle of Jericho. So the second thing we see them doing, they cross, they take. It is no different with you and me. We cross from death to life, and then God says, be it unto you according to your faith. We obtain the promises of God by faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he that comes to God must believe that He is and that He rewards those who diligently seek Him. So as they crossed, we crossed. As they took, we take. Every day that you wake up and I wake up, believe me, during that day, we're going to have an opportunity to take something by faith that God has given to us. So you've got to be a taker in the best sense of the word. Okay? Third, oh, from Joshua 5.13 all the way to Joshua 12, they are taking the land. I love that. Taking it. Defeating the enemies and taking it. Then they divide. Once they have taken the land, they divide it among the different tribes of Israel. Now let me just help you with that. They enjoy the blessings. They cross, they take, they enjoy the blessing. The kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but it is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. So their promised land was physical. Different cities, different towns, different geographical land masses. But our promised land is spiritual. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost, growing into the fullness of the stature of Christ, defeating our enemy, taking the land, and then enjoying what he's given to us. You know, it's so sad when I see believers who have no peace, no joy, they look like the worst thing that ever happened to them was they got saved. They look like they were baptized in pickled juice. They look sour, sad, grim, furrow brow. And I say, if God did that to you, I really do believe that we got to get back to Christianity as we see it in the Bible. And Christianity in the Bible had joy unspeakable and full of glory. Christianity in the Bible was, was a, an abundance of joy and good things happening within you. They took the promised land from enemies physically. We take the promised land from enemies spiritually strongholds, fears, giants of doubt, giants of lust, giants of addiction, giants of negative thinking and, and uh, sour living and, and 
misery, all the things that sin in the world give you. We take the land. We defeat the giants within. He who really conquers, conquers himself. So we grow into love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, kindness, and faith, and against such there is no law. That's our promised land. And believe me, if you're walking in those things, you've got joy. You're experiencing life abundant like Jesus said we would. But guess what, church? You've got to take it. Just like they did. It's not going to come beat you over the head, put you in a headlock and say, have joy. You gotta, you've got to get up and say, you've got to take it by faith. They, they went into city after city and, and defeated the huge giants that were there. And then they took the city and they divided it. And that's just a picture of, you know, they gave the, the, the different places they conquered to the various heads of the tribes, the 12 tribes, and they divided the land, which means they settled. They enjoyed what they had taken. You're not stealing anything when you take the land. The land was stolen from you. Way back when Adam fell. So really, we're getting back what was taken from us. Amen? So every day I get up and I start the day with the Word of God. I fill my mind and my heart with the Word of God. I give the Lord all my cares and worries and concerns, and I, I pray. I give Him my day. I pray all the time, Lord, order my steps in Your Word, and let not any iniquity have dominion over me. And then I go out the door filled with the Word. I do not go out the door running on empty, going on fumes from yesterday's revival. If you don't do this, Folks, then you're not taking the land. you gotta be, you got to be determined. I'm showing you here. Remember, God wrote this down for us so that we could see it in the New Covenant. And it's a type and a shadow and a picture of New Testament living. So say with me, let's go back. They, they crossed, they took, they divided, and then they serve. In the last few chapters, they serve. You read Joshua 22, 24, you see they're serving. Now, they cross, they take, they divide, they serve. This is where we see Joshua coming before the people and saying, make up your mind. Don't be schizophrenic. Make up your mind. Choose you this day who you will serve. So, because they had crossed, they had taken, they had divided. Now it's time to decide, now that God gave us all this, are we going to serve him or are we going to forget the God who gave us this? So he says, as for me and my house, what did he say? I'm going to serve the Lord. See, you can be saved. Now, now take this right. You can be saved and in your daily life not serve the Lord. You can serve your flesh. You can serve various idols. You can live in immaturity. Or you can decide, bless God, I crossed. I went from death to life. I'm saved. Now I'm going to take what God has given me by faith every single day. And then I'm going to enjoy what he gave me. I'm going to settle in it. I'm going to enjoy it. 
But then I'm not going to forget the God who got me there. I'm going to dance with the one that brung me, as they say. And I'm going to serve the Lord all the days of my life. This is good stuff. Are y'all enjoying this? I, I like this. This is such a picture. It's such a picture. I'm so thankful for these beautiful pictures God gave us. The land is divided, and it's now time to serve the Lord and not turn back. He's given them the land. They have taken it and divided it, and now it's time to serve him. Unfortunately, that is not what happens as we come to the judges. Joshua judges Ruth. That's the first three. Joshua judges Ruth. Now, easy way to remember that is picture Joshua judging Ruth. That's how I remembered it. Joshua, quit judging Ruth. There you go. Now, when you get to the judges, after God did all this for them, and they crossed, and they took, and they divided, and said they were going to serve the Lord, but when you come to the very next book, they don't. The book of Judges is grim. In the book of Judges, we find a completely different picture from what you see in Joshua 24, where they said, we're going to serve the Lord. You see a totally different picture. Judges records the sad story of Israel's apostasy. What is an apostate, church? What does apostate mean? It means you used to know the truth. An apostate is not a wicked sinner who's never come to Christ, never gotten close. That's not what an apostate is. An apostate apostatized from the truth. Remember what Paul said in Timothy? He said, in the last days, many or some will depart from what? The faith, the truth and will give themselves over to doctrines of demons. So you got people who knew the truth, were very aware of John 3, 16, the claims of Christianity and all that, and they apostatize. It never got deep down in them. Do you know that some of the worst people in history are apostates? Marx was an apostate. Marx was raised in a Christian home. Rousseau was an apostate, raised in a Christian home. Friedrich Nietzsche, one of the most virulent atheists in the entire, West, in the entire known history of mankind, the German philosopher Nietzsche, was an apostate from the Christian faith. Paul is saying that there's going to be an apostasy in the end times. People are going to depart from the faith giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. Well, Judges isn't talking about people who knew nothing of God. It's talking about people who who knew all about God, who were given the covenants of God, but they apostatized. And God had to raise up judges to deliver them over and over again because every time they apostatized, they were turned over to an enemy. And that is a picture of what happens with you and I. If we walk away from God, believe me, God still has whale bellies. Jail, miserable relationships. I could, I could start listing the whale bellies. You think God only did that with Jonah? Listen, you run away from God, he will custom design a whale to swallow you whole. <laughs> I have visited people in that whale's belly. Help! Repent and he'll let you out. I like the fact that it says that, that when he repented, when Jonah repented, that whale vomited him out. 
And I really believe that's why Nineveh repented. Here comes this bleached, white, terrified, spooky-looking guy who's been in a whale's belly for three days and nights. I guarantee you just looking at him made you want to repent. Now, there are several key characters called judges in the book of Judges. You know, Gideon, Samson, Deborah. I think there might be, I think there were 12 of them somewhere therein. When you think of judges, don't think of a person in a black robe with a gavel in his hand. That's not what he's talking about when he talks about judges in the book of Judges. Uh, God used military leaders to deliver his people out from under their sin. And the amazing thing is they would deliver the people beautifully, take Gideon and the Midianites, this incredible deliverance from tens of thousands of Midianites by 300 men, and yet the people would go right back into sin as soon as the judge died. The main theme of judges is that when God's people disobey him, the result is always judgment. Disobedience results in judgment. In the New Testament, we would say chastening. God chastens every son whom he receives. If you are without chastening, then you're probably not a son of God. Anybody in here ever been whooped in God's woodshed? I don't mean that in a bad way. Have you ever been convicted? Has God ever brought you to task for something flesh in your life? Let me see that again. Some of you must be saints. All right. The, the Judges shows us that if you depart from God... It's never good. It never ends up in a good place. You always come under judgment. You always come under chastening. You always wind up in a lose-lose situation. There is no benefit to walking away from God. Sin has consequences every single time. So, Pastor Jeff, he'll forgive me. Yes, he'll forgive you, but I got a little picture for you. If you're on top of a 100-story building, and you decide that you're going to kill yourself, and you jump. And halfway down, you say, Lord, forgive me, this is a terrible decision. He forgives you. But do you immediately begin to levitate? <laughs> you're still going to go. So if you sin, God will certainly forgive you, but there's always consequences, church. There's always consequences if you decide to walk away from God. If I told you anything else, I'd be lying to you. See, we're so big on grace, we're so long on grace, that we're way too short on talking about consequences. These people discovered it every single solitary time they walked away from God. Disobedience results in judgment. The key verse in Judges 17, 6, here was their problem. Let's read it together. Quote, Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. That's the problem. Now look how far they've come from Joshua 24. We will serve the Lord. That meant obeying his word. Look what's happened to them in a short time. They've decided that they're going to do what's right in their own eyes. You know what we call that today? We call it relativism. And relativism is destroying America. Relativism is this. Whatever is true for me is what's true. So if I decide that I want to go live in more, uh, immorality and moral sin, if I decide I want to do that, that's my call. Because I disagree with the word, some people say, I disagree with the word that if I am 
intimately involved with a person unmarried, I disagree that that's a sin because we've decided we love each other and that God has sanctioned it because of our love. That's relativism. Here's the truth. Love never sanctions sin. We all are so full of amens tonight. <laughs> love never sanctions sin. We, I don't know where we get in our culture that if I love somebody, I can do anything. That because it's love, it somehow makes whatever I want to do sacred. Same-sex marriage, we love each other. When clear of the Bible is totally opposed to such a thing. And yet, listen to our culture. How, who are you to say that two people that love each other can't get married? Well, I'm nobody to say. But I must go to a source of truth. In other words, where are you getting your truth? If you're getting your truth from you, then let me tell you how much trouble you're in. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end of it are the ways of death. You see, when Adam fell and we fell with him, our compass got all messed up. Our moral compass, our ethical compass, our philosophical compass, our theological compass. And the Bible says, left to ourselves, we will never find our way home. We must be told what's right and wrong. And the only way you're told is either horizontally from other people, and they're also all messed up, or you're going to get it vertically by divine revelation. Church, hear me now. America's about to go into the total ditch because we kicked the Word out. We kicked the God of the Word out and said, we don't need Him anymore because we know what's right. Now look what's happening to us. We have gone into the abyss of absolute moral and ethical insanity where right is wrong and wrong is right and good is bad and bad is good. I feel like I'm in a lunatic asylum all the time. Every man, when, when a person or a culture says, I'm going to do what's right in my own eyes, Mark it down. It won't be long before you hear that they're doing all kinds of crazy things and self-destructing. We must have our truth from divine revelation. Thy word is truth. So where are you getting your truth tonight? I hope from the word. I hope in every area of your life you're getting it from the word. Because whatever area you're not getting it from the word, you're in trouble in that area. In a short amount of time, they've gone from saying we will serve the Lord to saying we're going to do what's right in our own eyes. And the key chapter is Judges 2. That's the key chapter. It's a miniature version of the entire book. And verses 16 through 19 perfectly encapsulate the book. Verse 16, Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but they played the harlot with other gods and bowed down to them. Look what they ended up doing when they said, I'm going to do what's right in my own eyes. Can you imagine bowing down to a piece of wood that somebody carved out from a tree and worshiping it? The Bible says in the Psalms, it can't hear, it can't speak, it can't see, it can't help. But here are these fools 
bowing down to a piece of wood. And that's what happens when you say, I'm going to do what's right in my own eyes. You always end up worshiping an idol that at face value is ridiculous. Y'all are quiet tonight. The wheels are turning. Amen? They turn quickly from the way in which their fathers walked, it goes on to say. They turn quickly in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do so. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning. Look what they ended up doing when they walked away and did what was right in their own eyes. What did they end up doing? Say the word groaning. Groaning. That's what you're going to end up doing if you say, I'm going to do what's right in my own eyes and I'm going to quit following the scriptures. You'll end up groaning. <laughs> because of those who oppress them, you'll end up oppressed and harass them. You'll end up harassed. And it came to pass when the judge was dead, look what they did. They reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not cease from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. Gosh, what a picture of the United States of America. They did not cease from their own doings nor from their own stubborn way. Do you know what a great day it is in your life and mine when we finally break and say, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Until then, you're cruising for a bruising. This is life, folks. This is life. And this is the way it is. In Judges, we see a constant cycle of apostasy. Judges rise up, God saves, then they fall back into sin even worse than before. Disobedience always results in judgment. And notice the connection between oppression and deliverance. Their failure to conquer the land and their failure to keep the law is highlighted at the beginning and the end. They didn't keep the law. They didn't conquer the land. They didn't obey God. They didn't, they didn't win the battles. So can you say with me, obedience precedes victory. How many of you want victory in your life? You'll never have it apart from obedience. Not going to happen. Okay? In the middle section, their back and forth between oppression and salvation is referenced eight different times. They would disobey God and go into oppression. God would save them, and they would go back into oppression. Then you have the bookends on each side of Judges at the beginning and the end. There's failure to conquer the land, which is the result of failure to keep the law. Failure to conquer the land, failure to keep the law. It's a cycle of disobedience and victory that we see in each of those eight instances. So here's the personal application which you can walk out of this tonight with. Our obedience to God's Word and our personal victory Go hand in hand. No obedience, no victory. Do it your way, you lose. Obedience, victory. Throughout the book, we see relapse, ruin, repentance, and restoration. And then God brings them into rest. Now, can you identify with the book of Judges? Anybody in here ever been around the same mountain more than once? I have. Okay, do you see how this is real for the church over 2,000 years later? Best thing the church could do is embrace the word and preach it with all the fire and gusto and power she can. 
and live it. As we observe the gradual deterioration of Israel in the book of Judges, you're going to see what it leads to in First and Second Samuel. But now let's go to Ruth. The third book of the dynamic dozen is Ruth. Ruth is the story of a woman of the Gentile nation of Moab. And you remember the Moabites were constant enemies of Israel. They were going up against the Moabites all the time. And the Moabites were attacking God's people all the time. So here you've got a woman, Ruth, who is of and from an enemy nation. And she chooses to serve the God of Israel. She's converted. She becomes a believer. And she became the great-grandmother of a really important guy. Who? David. Ruth literally means friendship. And this book is one of the great love stories of all time. The overall purpose is to trace the royal lineage of King David and ultimately King Jesus. That's the overall real theme of Ruth. Okay? I'll talk about that more in a minute. It gives us a picture or a line that's going to lead to Jesus in Matthew 1, where Ruth is mentioned. Boaz is the center of the love story. He's the knight in shining armor. And the key phrase in Ruth is kinsman redeemer. Boaz, who was a kinsman redeemer, pays the price to bring Ruth, a Moabitess, into the people of God. He was the nearest of kin, and he had the right to buy her. So he paid the price to bring her into his family. Now, this is so easy to apply to us, isn't it? Because Ruth was outside of the covenant people. She was not of Israel. She was not a partaker of the covenant in the natural. She was a Gentile. But Boaz purchased her, paid a price to bring her into the family of covenant. Now, what happened with you and me? The Bible says, you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. So as Ruth was purchased and brought into the family of covenant, you and I were purchased not by money, not by dinero, not by dollars, but by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we were brought into the covenant of God. It's a beautiful picture. Now, pay close attention to Naomi. Naomi here. Naomi gets left out of the picture because we so become enthralled with Boaz and Ruth and the whole romance drama. But Naomi was Ruth's mother-in-law. And the Bible says that with what is, uh, Naomi is there and the transition goes like this. From emptiness, here's what Naomi does. She goes from emptiness to fullness in Ruth. From despair to hope in Ruth 2 to 3. And from barrenness to inheritance in Ruth 4. Can I tell you, you and I, we go from emptiness to fullness in Jesus. We go from despair to hope in Jesus. And we go from barrenness, don't we, to an incredible inheritance in Jesus. How many of you feel blessed tonight? Isn't that a blessing? Now, remember that Ruth takes place during the time of Joshua and Judges when the deterioration of Israel is taking place. It's a very dark hour. Israel is totally backslidden and apostatized. Yet even in the darkness of national apostasy, God shines the light of his covenant in dealing with Ruth. God is moving 
during the whole time Israel is apostatizing. America is forsaking God. But folks, let me tell you something. God's moving. People are being saved all over the world. Ruth shows us that God is moving even in the darkest of times. How many of you have ever been through a real valley and once you came out on the other side and you looked back, you saw that he carried you the whole way? God was shining the whole time. He moves in a dark hour. The miracle is that Ruth, who is a Moabite and not a part of the people of Israel, is brought into the family of God through Boaz, who is a type of Christ. This very thing had been promised to Abraham in Genesis 12. What did God tell Abraham? In the Abrahamic covenant, he said, through you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. All of them. Not just Israel. All of them. God told Abraham that through the people of Israel, every single nation in the world was going to experience the blessing of God. Now, in Ruth, we see somebody outside of Israel being brought into the covenant family, and that is huge. Ruth 4, verses 13 to 17 talks about how Ruth is now in the line that would lead to the king. The first book of the New Testament, Matthew, begins with a what a lot of people consider a boring genealogy. And I'll admit to you, unless you know what you're looking for, it's boring. But watch this. You read Matthew 1. By sheer grace, we find that God decided to place Ruth right in the middle of the line that leads to Jesus Christ. What a prominent place to be placed. Look at Matthew 1.1. Matthew opens up this way. The book of the genealogy of who? So who is he tracking here? The genealogy leading to who? Come on, everybody. Genealogy leading to Jesus Christ. That's what it, Matthew 1.1. The son of David, the son of Abraham. Now look at verses 5 to 6. Salmon begat Boaz by who? You mean Rahab the harlot? Wait a minute. That's got to be a mistake, Matthew. You're not telling me that not only did he put Ruth, a Moabitess, in the middle of the lineage leading to Christ, but he put a former harlot? Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Now look at this. This is so powerful. You talk about verses of grace. Salmon begat Boaz by Rahab the harlot. And Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. And Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. The lineage leading up to Jesus Christ, two people were grafted in that you would never have imagined. And they were grafted in by grace, a former harlot and a Moabitess, a Gentile. You know what that tells us? Our God is a God of amazing grace. How sweet the sound. He saved a wretch like me. He took a harlot and he took a Moabitess, the enemies of Israel, and grafted them into the very lineage that led to David, which led to Christ. It shows that God totally forgives. And once he forgives, he redeems and he honors. 
Verse 5 contains two great miracles of grace. Boaz begotten by Rahab the harlot, Obed, David's grandfather, begotten by the Moabitess, Ruth. God placed a former harlot and a Gentile Moabitess into the lineage that led to Christ. Can we give the Lord a hand for his grace tonight? That's amazing. That's amazing. Through Ruth, who was not an Israelite by birth, would come the lineage of the one who would ultimately bring salvation, not only to Israel, but also to the whole world. So Joshua, Judges, and Ruth fit together and create a beautiful picture. And next time, we will come to the monarchy. Can we stand together? How many of you are thankful for that amazing grace? And, and, and you know... I read this and I think, who knows what you and I are going to be, who you and I are going to be fellowshipping with in heaven. He may, he may hook you up with Abraham to go visit other planets or do something that God's got in his mind. You may be walking one day with Elijah. Who knows? Because God took a Moabitess and a harlot and put them in the lineage that led to Christ. Our God's a good God. He don't make no junk. Amen. So, Lord, we just thank you right now for the Word of God. We thank you for Joshua Judges Ruth. We thank you, Lord, for how we see that even though your people failed constantly, the redemptive finger of God kept right on moving. And the footprints of God kept on stepping all the way to the appearance of the Messiah. And Lord, we celebrate the birth of that Messiah in this season. We thank you, Lord, that no matter how the enemy tried to attack and destroy and dismantle your plan, your redemptive hand was still moving and nothing stopped the journey to the manger. And we praise you and thank you and bless you for it. We lift our hands and say, Lord, thank you for your redemption.